Hi, and welcome to another episode of Dungeons and Degrees. My name's Adrian. And I'm Alex. And today we have a returning guest and a special guest for the first time. We have Justin Mann and Dragnacarta. Welcome, Dragnacarta, as he's our newest guest. Hello, and thank you very much for having me. And thank you, Justin, for coming back. Of course. Anytime, anyplace. <laughs> Dragnac, tell us about yourself, about what you in the D&D space. Sure. So my tagline on Twitter is ends with the words, should probably stop playing so much Curse of Strahd. Uh, and that should probably tell you a lot about how I, you know, kind of delved into the 5e community, right? Um, I've been DMing since 4e, but 5e really caught me back in. And for whatever reason, back in 2016, I picked up this uh, little module that had come out within the past year or so called Curse of Strahd. Um, I was like, oh, this will be fun. And instead of just running one campaign, I have since run two and a half. I'm almost under the third. I'm a moderator on the r slash Curse of Strahd subreddit community for DMs creating community content. I'm uh, running an actual play live stream and podcast of uh, Curse of Strahd called Twice Bitten. Uh, rules is written playthrough, played through by uh, five actual Curse of Strahd DMs to really explore how far you can push the module uh, without departing from the written text. Uh, and I've also uh, written a series of guides called Curse of Strahd Reloaded, basically trying to find you know gaps at other places uh, inside of the original module, or maybe there's a little more space to develop the actual content of the campaign, places where you know maybe there are questions that the original author is left unanswered, and just generally trying to fill it out and uh, make it a uh, more engaging uh, experience. Hence the name Reloaded. Adrian, did you just invite Justin and I to your, like, open date? Listen, Justin's <laughs> here, too, for a reason, okay? He, I know, but, he's like... He's here because he took some uh, inspiration from Dragna, and I think about the Fanes, if I'm not mistaken, Justin? That's right. Oh, man, uh, my group has... So I extended... So we're, we're in the middle of Curse of Strahd as well, as uh, repeat listeners would know by now. But uh, I extended the Curse of Strahd book campaign up to level 15. Mm. So I am heavily influenced by you, Dragna, on your stuff that you built, especially for the Fanes. I did message you a few times through Discord, and I got to see some of your stuff before it was published and get some really solid ideas from it as they've moved through. My group right now just cleared... So I put the, I put the, put your earmuffs on those that are listening for my campaign. I put <laughs> the Huntress under the Golthias tree and kind of used your stuff plus Mandy Mod stuff and made like this little mini dungeon under the Golthias tree for, for the Huntress. And I've, uh, they're actually headed into the swamp for the Swamp Fane right now. And I really love the, the rune thing you've got set up. Oh, thank you. And that's fantastic. Uh, for those who don't know, Mandy uh, or Mandy Mod is the author of another uh, series of Curse of Strahd, Guides and Religion, not Religion, so I guess some people, you can certainly treat it that way, uh, Revisions, <laughs> called Fleshing Out Curse of Strahd, and she does some fantastic work. I think she's actually publishing like uh, full, gorgeous PDF versions on DMs Guild. If you're in the market for Curse of Strahd, you know, definitely check her out. She does great stuff. Uh, but yeah, awesome. I'm glad to hear my stuff has helped you, Justin. It's, uh, it's been a lot of fun to work on, and funnily you mentioned the Fanes, actually. I'm working on a revamp of the Mountain one now, so hopefully I can publish that in a reasonable timeline, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. So did you put the mountain fane up in uh, where the temple is? Yeah. So it's been a lot of on and off. For those who aren't familiar with the fanes, fifth, Curse of Strahd, you know, is based on the Strahd von Zarevich, uh, kind of this vampire villain who's been around in D&D &D for 
decades. Uh, I believe he started around Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Second Edition, uh, and he's had a lot of modules through the years. And while the Fifth Edition version, Curse of Straw, doesn't have it, an earlier edition had something called the Fanes, which were kind of holy sites of blessed power that uh, gave Strahd, the vampire villain of the module, certain abilities uh, and buffs, uh, you know, plus to his armor class, resistance against elemental damage, things like that. Uh, and, you know, in the older older lore, they were connected to, you know, kind of fey, undead guardians, and drew their power from uh, assorted saints. And so one of the things that I did in my guide was in Curse of Strahd 5th edition, uh, there are a number of sites scattered through Barovia, basically little stonehenges, circles of standing stones with, you know, assorted powers, especially uh, targeted toward druids and such, and kind of ancient, ancient religions uh, targeted around them. So the fanes were kind of born of, hey, what if we brought these kind of older ideas of the fanes of Barovia, which are, again, these kind of like ancient runic cir uh, circular stones uh, that provide Strahd with these abilities and brought them into the modern day 5th edition uh, Curse of Strahd. Uh, and the Mountain Fane is one of them. There are three Fanes, Mountain Fane, Swamp Fane, and Forest Fane. And those are actually the names from the old original edition. Uh, I think it's Expedition to Castle Ravenloft is the name. That's a third or 3.5 edition module for Strahd. And the way that they work in my revision is that rather than just being kind of connected to ancient holy saints of, you know, like Lathander or the God of the Sun, Curse of Strahd 5th edition has a very strong sub-narrative of uh, a druidic people who inhabited the valley uh, before Strahd or any, you know, outside settlers really arrived. There's kind of this, you know, indigenous culture native to the area. So the book as written in fifth edition doesn't really explore that. So the fanes were partially born out of like, okay, well, how do we, you know, create some kind of culture surrounding this older civilization in this area and, you know, hopefully do it in a respectful way. But it's it's been fun to explore those kinds of, you know, uh, older cultures and uh, lore in designing these new areas to add to this, you know, gothic horror module. And it's a lot of stuff. Um, Mandy, when we had her on, I want to say like back in October or September, said that you wrote like thousands of or like 1500 words or like some ridiculous amount of like information just for Chris Estrada. And you speaking, you speaking on it currently is just like, yeah, there's a reason. <laughs> you know all this background. <laughs> I mean, I've been drowning in it for the past five years. Like ever again, ever since 2016, like, funnily enough, Curse of Strahd Reloaded was not my first Curse of Strahd guide. I saw this uh, other person, you uh, slash pain trainer on Reddit, posting on the D&D behind the screen subreddit. And they were posting, you know, what I have learned from writing Curse of Strahd. And, you know, I was, you know, in the process of finishing my own Curse of Strahd campaign for the first time. And I was like, huh, maybe I should, you know, post some of my own experience. And, you know, that eventually became the Reloaded campaign guide. But I, th I think for me, uh, I've just spent so long in this space, like, I've read the module like cover to cover like three times. I've checked, you know, it for, you know, assorted citations more times than I can count. I've read uh, so many, you know, revisions on the module that I've probably lost count of them. Literally last summer, I, in preparation for Twice Bitten, uh, the uh, rules as written uh, live stream slash podcast campaign I'm running, I literally went through every book of the mod, every chapter of the book and cross referenced and annotated every like line of it with post it notes and, you know, Google Doc comments and such. And like, cause like there's a lot of stuff in Wizards of the Coast's narrative style where like in chapter one, they'll say something in like one sentence and in chapter 15, they'll make a passing reference to it again. But most people won't remember the thing from chapter one. So I went like in a, this deep dive, like it was, it was nuts. I still see it in my dreams sometimes probably. But like uh, the benefit of that is that you get very, very familiar with the content in a very specific singular Wizards of the Coast fifth edition module. It's like that one XKCD comic of the two guys trapped in a, 
box for a year and they have the only, only form of entertainment is like pictures of Joe Biden eating sandwiches. Like eventually you get very good at picking out the fine details of Joe Biden eating sandwiches. <laughs> it sounds like you are Strahad and Strahad is you at this point. Oh God. <laughs> I mean, at least for fifth edition, there's a lot of, you know, uh, he's a villain that I've grown very familiar with running, right? Like I've, I've gotten pretty deep in his head and actually like there's a lot of different ways of approaching him too, you know, in general, if you're familiar with Curse of Strahd, you know he's this kind of, you know, very calculating, manipulative, predatory villain. You know, vampires, you know, have a history of being metaphors for certain, you know, taboo issues uh, and topics. And, you know, Strahd, uh, uh, specifically in the 5th edition module, was meant as, a, as kind of leaving behind the kind of twilight slash urban fantasy reinvention of vampires as his kind of romantic interest and more returning to vampires as monsters. And so... I found that space very interesting to explore as, you know, a foil to the protagonists, to the PCs. But I think on top of that, there's so many different dimensions to that. There's, you know, Strahd in the style of Dracula from Castlevania. There's, you know, Strahd as this, you know, emotionless, you know, predatory, you know, torturous monster. There's Strahd as this kind of, you know, lore, this kind of manipulative person who's trying to corrupt you uh, to his own side. And so the, there's not just one Strahd, right? He's such a timeless villain who's been explored in so many different ways. I mean, whenever someone comes to me, as, like in my Patreon Discord, pings me on Twitter, and they're like, hey, how, Dragna, how would you approach, you know, Strahd in this scenario? My first question is always, you know, who is your Strahd? Where is he coming from? What does he want? How does he think? Because, you know, there's not just one rendition of this character. He's had so many inventions over the years, and so many DMs explore him in different ways. If you want to know who he is you know, you have to first know who he is in your game. And so that's, you know, always something I try to focus on, because I'm sure that my interpretation, you know, especially in different campaigns, because I don't always run him the same way twice. My interpretation, I'm sure, doesn't match everyone else's approach to the character. So that's something I always try to impress upon, just because, you know, it's, it's such a broad and varied uh, field in terms of how you can approach that interpretation. I need someone to run Strahd like Edward Cullen, and I need to be a part of this game, please. So if anybody <laughs> needs that in their life, this is my official call to arms. It's funny. I actually, I actually have a friend who's a player in a game uh, run by and for DMs who are very into the whole Ravenloft uh, campaign setting. Ravenloft being the setting where Strahd lives, uh, this kind of gothic horror slash just general horror D&D campaign setting for those who aren't familiar with it. And in that setting, they just take all these villains or dark lords, as they're called, including Strahd. Uh, and they're basically, I want to say that they're like, it's like a high school drama context or, or, or something like that. It, it's absolutely <laughs> hilarious. That's awesome. So like there, there's definitely a market for it. If you can find a group to play with just, you know, <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say that, Alex, I actually started again, earmuffs. I actually started thinking about and building out a vampires versus werewolves section in, in my campaign, <laughs> but it, it died off really quickly because the, the werewolf side got defeated secretly behind the players backs, obviously, because they didn't follow some thread or whatever. And shit happens behind the scenes in my campaign. But I really tried to explore that the whole vampires versus werewolves thing not in the sparkly vampire way though that's for sure look all i'm saying is that maybe curse of strahd needs just a random baseball game in the middle of it and just make that happen <laughs> i could see it i could see it. I, you know that'd be the perfect way to flex you know just you know show those uh low level pcs who's boss just bring them out to the baseball diamond line up the old louisville slugger and just have at it I think it was just a real angels in the outfield moment that just ghosts just appear from cornfield. 
I mean, with those legendary actions, he can catch a lot of fly balls. Moving pretty quick. <laughs> That's a field of dreams, Adrian. Ghosts in the, in the. I got outfield. my baseball movies incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Alex. I needed that. It's okay. Okay, so what is one of your favorite curse uh, Strahd moments coming to your players? Hmm. Man, that's a tough question to answer. You know, I, I've had a lot of them uh, over the course of, you know, multiple campaigns. Is there anything in particular, you know, or just, you know, kind of a, there's, a, there's got to be a buffet of options I could probably dig from. <laughs> What's the first one that comes to your brain? Uh, the first one that comes to my brain uh, and, you know, no, uh, nothing against uh, my current twice bitten cash because they're fantastic. But in a, my second campaign, my reloaded campaign, uh, one of the players was a cleric of the Stormlord of Cord, and their backstory was that they had, you know, been abandoned in a monastery as a child and had been searching their whole lives for a place to fit in. And upon arriving at, and, and this has nothing to do with Curse of Strahd itself as a module, this is custom content that I added. Uh, there's a village that I've added to uh, the southern Mount Gakis called Yadrag, the home of what I call the mountain folk, uh, the, you know, the indigenous population that, you know, dwells in the Balaknok mountains and was kind of pushed out with the arrival of other peoples, especially Strahd. And this uh, cleric, you know, finding, you know, their way there kind of has been, you know, searching for meaning, searching for some kind of purpose. And one of the encounters I added along the way up through Solanka Pass, up through that mountain, um, was rescuing uh, a child from this settlement who had been, you know, their parents had been uh, killed by... Uh, winter wolves prowling around the uh, cliffs of the mountain or, and by, you know, demonic forces, because this mountain is home to a, a demon corrupted temple and the cleric, you know, rescue, help, you know, rescue this child, you know, help with the party, bring them back to Yadrag, back to the settlement. And, you know, due to the way that, you know, the, this character interacted with the other peoples of the settlement, they were very much able to, you know, find a home here um, and start, you know, building kind of these familial connections in a very heartwarming way. Um, you know, with uh, the child that they had rescued who just lost his parents, um, not in a parental way, but kind of an assembling-like way, uh, and, you know, really connecting with the uh, other members of, of this village, of the settlement. And I think for me, that's something interesting that, you know, Curse of Strahd as a module itself doesn't always do, um, because it's gothic horror, it's very alienating, it's very, you know, survival horror. But one of the things I like to do in my own revisions and my own runs of the campaign is offering these moments of light where, you know, it reminds you of why you're fighting. It's, you know, a, a sunbeam amidst the darkness, right? And I think for this character who would, you know, part, a part of their backstory was trying to find a way to, you know, connect with those around them to find, you know, you know, not just a drive to kill Strahd because, you know, the character's lawful good and is doing it, you know, for the glory of the Stormlord, but more on a personal level to connect with this family of people who had lived in the valley and had, you know, suffered under Strahd's rule themselves. I think that was a very, you know, pivotal moment. And just for me, something that I'm going to remember because it, it goes to show, you know, it doesn't all just have to be at, you know, spookiness and, you know, scaring your players and, you know, these really overpowered, you know, vampire monsters or whatever. It's also about, you know, showing them opportunities to connect, opportunities to bring a little light into their characters' lives and, you know, something meaningful to fight for. And I think that's, you know, something that can be underrated at times. Um, but I think in, in this character's case, it, it went over very well and just kind of gave me a, a, a me and that character, the, the player, a very satisfying story arc to remember. That's amazing. And it's very important to have those like points of levity, because like if it's all doom and gloom, the, it's going to be a trudge through this whole campaign. I try to make sure to have some sort of points where it's like restful 
a small win, even though it might not be a total outright win, but something to keep them going. Because otherwise, it's just like, man, this is just a grind. I am sad mm-hmm. all the time in Barovia. Yeah. And like, I kind of try to push that, you know, it's not a specific moment, but, you know, the, the book itself on its page about Marks of Horror, you know, discusses how, uh, you know, how to use foreshadowing to scare your players, how to use, you know, you know, little sights and sounds to scare them, the personification. But one of the things it also mentions is light, levity, you know, bringing in those contrasts, right? And, you know, something I try to do, for example, in uh, Curse of Strahd, there's uh, a, a family that owns a tavern and a winery called the Mardikovs. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're secretly members. Actually, I won't go too far because, uh, you know, player spoilers. Uh, but one of the things that, you know, I try to play up is that they're very, you know, uh, welcoming to outsiders in Barovia in a land that is very alienating, can leave people feeling very alone. Uh, they create a home that the players can return to at their tavern. And I think for me, you know, that again is very kind of this cornerstone of giving the players a place to return to, of giving them allies and friends that can remind them that there's light in the darkness um, and just kind of helping to form this emotional core because playing a horror can be taxing. It can be exhausting, but having a, a place, whether that's allies or friends or a safe space to return to can really recharge your player spirits and enable them to continue going on that very dark journey. So I think that's one thing that I've you know really learned over my time running this module is it's, it's so important to give them those spaces of light and levity. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I I had a question. You have so much lore and thought behind your campaigns, especially for Twice Bitten and your previous campaigns. This is a sort of a side question. How do you set the table for your players in terms of expectations? Or how do you expect them to participate in your world? What's a no-no? What's a please do this? I encourage it. How do you kind of set that table? Do you have a session zero? Oh, absolutely. I think in general, you know, it, it does depend on the audience, right? You know, I've run games for coworkers. I've run games for, you know, uh, you know, friends of friends, um, usually not long-term campaigns. But, you know, if I, I have a lot of experience running for newbies, right? And so if I'm running for a group of new players or, you know, players who are returning to the hobby after a few decades of being off, then I'm going to be a lot more lenient. I'm going to try to meet them where they're at. I'm going to try to, you know, just gently slide them and give them as good an experience as I can. And if there are issues, you know, in the process, you know, usually, you know, new players tend to bring a lot less baggage, a lot fewer expectations. So it's a lot easier to mold the session into um, something that they can enjoy. And if things pop up as they go, you know, then it's easy to, you know, revisit. I think in general, though, for more long form campaigns, especially with more experienced players, you know, as Twice Bitten is, as my Reloaded campaign was, especially for if I were to do long-term campaigns going forward, you know, aside from, you know, continuing, you know, with the twice bitten cast. Session zero, absolutely, absolutely essential. You've got to understand, you know, your players' goals for the game, where they're coming from. And that's not to say that you have to agree on everything. Uh, in twice bitten right now, you know, um, we have a few players that are very much into the role play and just ver- and are not very comfortable with crunch. We've got some players who, you know, very much love viewing D&D as a puzzle and as combat as, you know, this tactical experience to be solved or optimized. But I think, you know, that doesn't mean that they can't be part of the same group. What's important is that they're all interested in, you know, the same overall experience, right? Like they want to tell a story. They want to explore these characters. Um, they want to, you know, really come together and explore this and create this narrative together, um, which, you know, not every group wants to do. I think, you know, fundamentally, a lot of what Session Zero should be about is finding out 
you know, not just setting common expectations, but finding, you know, whether you're able to provide for each other the experience you're looking to provide. I'm just kind of taking a quick tangent. You know, I play uh, Magic the Gathering, the collectible card game. And, you know, if you're going to play, you know, uh, certain formats at stores, uh, I, I play the commander format, EDH, where there's like a lot of variation between power levels and decks. Like some people want to play like really cutthroat competitive stuff. And some people just want to, you know, play some fun cards they found and, you know, chill out with their friends. And, you know, there's kind of this idea of like the rule zero conversation before you start the game there, which is, you know, what kind of gameplay are you looking for? Are you looking for something really, really high power and competitive? Are you looking for something that's just, you know, kick back and relax or just play cool cards and have a good time with your friends? Because um, those are two very different experiences. And part of the importance of having that initial conversation is figuring out whether you're looking for the same thing. Because D&D is not just one game. D&D is a kaleidoscope of games that means different things to different people, right? And so if, you know, you're just looking for a beer and pretzels game where you just kind of kick back and, you know, throw dice and have a good time with your friends killing goblins, or if you don't, you want, you know, as Twice Bitten is, a very, you know, in-depth game about, you know, role-playing and storytelling and building a narrative and kind of working, you know, meeting the game world on its terms. Or, you know, there's you, maybe you're someone who's really into playing your character and expressing yourself through that character. And, you know, you kind of want the very traditional fantasy medieval experience, but, you know, you're still not really looking at the character's part of yourself. It's just, you know, the controller through with you through which you engage with the world of the fantasy, of the medieval fantasy kind of ideal. I think, you know, session zero is very important for hashing out, is everyone looking for the same kind of experience? And, you know, the, also there's obviously it's all the other stuff to get through, like, you know, homebrew rules, you know, how you're going to, how deadly is the campaign, you know, how the DMs go to approach things like, like lines and veils, you know, which are very important, X cards, triggers, and, you know, the kinds of themes and narratives that, and, you know, topics that you're interested in and genres as well. Uh, but I think, you know, at its core for me is, you know, for me, what I'm looking for at this point in my DMing career, so to speak, is those, you know, narrative games, you know, where everyone's meeting the world where it is. You know, I'm not, I have a lot of respect for people who, you know, run these kind of like Skyrim-esque games. I've, I've run stuff like that before where, you know, it's about you engaging with this world and having a good time poking around and messing around with that world. But for me, I'm very into games where the players in the DM are all meeting each other in the context of the game world. And, you know, there's a certain level of willingness to immerse themselves and willingness to kind of work from a meta angle to construct the best story collaboratively that you can while still working in the confines of D&D's mechanics and system. And so for me, that would be, you know, my sessions here are like, hey, this is what I'm looking for. And if someone is looking for something else, then that's fine. That just means maybe we're not compatible. And, you know, maybe uh, another DM would be a better fit for them. But I, I, for those reasons, I think that session zeros are absolutely essential because you've got to know if you're looking for the same kind of experience. And if not, there's nothing wrong with that. But you have to have that common understanding because not having that that common understanding can lead to a lot of problems down the line. Yeah, no, totally, totally agreed. Have you have you played uh, newbies and obviously you've played experienced players in Curse of Strahd? And could you articulate the maybe a specific difference in like, hey, I'm, I mean, obviously you've never played D and D before versus I want to go narratively. How do you think about? approaching specific scenarios or maybe the campaign as a whole and is there a specific change that you make mm -hmm. so I'll, I'll say this with you know the upfront you know disclaimer that you know all players are different and i'm not going to try to generalize to the broader population but you know, in my own experience um you know i've run for two groups of first timers ish and you know uh, that was my first campaign my reloaded campaign and, you know, my third campaign, Twice Spin, is obviously, you know, with mostly very experienced players, DMs. 
And so I think the big difference between them, um, I mean, first off, it depends on where they're coming from, right? Like, you know, even just between, you know, my two campaigns and one campaign, I had players, you know, who did not have very much of a, you know, traditional fantasy gaming background. Like they were nerds, but like nerds in their own little, you know, nerd fiefdoms, right? Like they weren't coming at from the perspective of, oh yeah, I played the Witcher and, you know, uh, I watched Game of Thrones and, you know, I really, you know, like this, you know, specific medieval fantasy that D&D sells to these, these audiences. Like they were kind of this assortment. And, you know, for them, a lot of the fun as they got into it was, you know, uh, exploring these, you know, genre tropes, really, really getting a kick out of, you know, the vampire, you know, the whole, the whole Dracula idea um, about, you know, these, these spooky Gothic monsters about, you know, connecting with the NPCs, you know, but like still not entirely going with their characters, but just kind of pushing and seeing where they could, you know, push the narrative and, you know, seeing how much they could push at the boundaries of the genre cliches and such they thought they were in. Um, so that was, that was a lot of fun. Uh, that oh, that campaign, sounds cool. I mean, it was a lot of fun. Like that came campaign's climax was literally, they were trying to stop Strahd before he uh, had a wedding to a friend of theirs. So in the middle of the ceremony, uh, they crashed in through the stained glass windows of the chapel while an instrumental version of I Need a Hero played. It was fantastic. <laughs> but, you know, in my other campaign, you know, they, they were still magical. new to D&D, &D, but they, you know, were very much coming from a, you know, uh, Warhammer, Skyrim, you know, Witcher, whatever kind of background. You know, they were very familiar with those kinds of genre tropes. And for them, I think there was more this idea of wanting to live out these archetypal fantasies, you know, right? Like the, the valiant paladin knight, the good cleric of the gods, you know, they were kind of interested in, you know, rather than pushing the boundaries of the genre and, you know, getting a chance to play the roles of these very archetypal characters that they had enjoyed in their favorite fantasy spaces. And, you know, I've kind of seen that pattern, you know, repeated in other games that I've played, that I've DM'd for, like other groups of newbies who, you know, may not even be nerds, you know, they don't have that, you know, fantasy sci-fi backing, but they're trying D&D for the first time instead, you know, they they just kind of tend to push whatever they have and run with it, you know, not worry any, and just push the genre convention as much as they can. Um, whereas, you know, those more, those players with a stronger familiarity and history with the hobby and the field of, you know, fantasy and sci-fi conventions tend to try to, you know, uh, explore those traditional roles before branching out further. And I think that's the main difference that I've seen between them. But, you know, of course, I'm working from pretty small data points. So who am I to generalize? Pretty small data points running Curses Drahad three or four times. Yeah. <laughs> and all the effort, all years of effort, just worth of like what 10, 20 players max. <laughs> yeah, right. But hey, I hope hopefully I, you know, I helped uh, some friends of mine enjoy a good story. Exactly. Yeah. I've been running mine and I think we're about we're on the last leg of it for a year and a half now. And I've taken a bit, but from some of the subreddits, but not a lot, because I'm always afraid of like, when I was very early on in the campaign, like misinterpreting or not executing the idea that was like on their paper as well. Like, I was always afraid of that idea of like, this sounds good, but can I as a DM execute it? So I, I kind of like near the, I want to say midway point, I just like, I'm just going to do it the way that I think it should go. And I kind of stopped looking at other resources because I was afraid I was going to mess something up in my party so i've mostly just been making my own as well but less documented <laughs> on how the story's going and i have this little backlog of lore of things that are going on in the background and making little short stories just for fun and then releasing it to my players at the end of the campaign which i'm super excited to do <laughs> oh that sounds great I mean, you know, ultimately, like D&D &D is your story, right? You know, you're in your player's story. You know, as DMs, we're not the sole storyteller, but we're certainly the story setter, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, 
there's a an insane amount of content like you know five years ago when i started you know in this community right like there was nothing near the absolute flood of content that there is now like it's oh, yeah. insane like any like we've been trying to on this on the curse of strahd subreddit we've been trying for months to put together a wiki but you know uh cataloging all the resources that people have contributed but it just keeps growing bigger and you know i think you know in general it can it can feel challenging because of all those resources floating around but also because there's not really, you know, a coherent uh, way of integrating them, right? Like, right. something funny is that, you know, Curse of Strahd Reloaded, my guide, you know, if anyone who reads it will notice that the first, you know, nine or so chapters of the guide tend to have a lot of citations to assorted Reddit posts and, you know, blog articles. And the reason for that is that, you know, Reloaded began as my own, you know, session reference guide. It didn't, it didn't begin as a community guide. It was just, wow, there's a lot of cool community content out there. I should try to consolidate it so I can use it in my next campaign. And, you know, that was my way of organizing things. And then eventually I was like, oh, hey, maybe this will be helpful to people. Um, and that's how I wound up publishing it. And so I think I think it's challenging trying to consolidate and mesh together all of these things to try to make a coherent whole. Even the first time I ran Curse of Strahd, like I wasn't going off of any community content. I was just making it up as I went along and, you know, half reading, half uh, riffing off of the off of the text of the actual book. And I, th I think in addition to like there's a lot of ideas floating out there, like you know, community content ultimately is just inspiration, right? But the tough thing is that it can be difficult, like you said, to really know how you're going to implement, how you're going to execute. Because like in fifth edition, especially, there are a lot of resources for inspiration. There's a lot of resources for ideas, but implementation and execution are things that the DMG and other wizards resources tend to kind of leave up to the uh, DM. You know, a wizards, you know, production model tends, still tends to assume that, you know, like Minecraft, D&D is something that you're taught to do by someone else, not by the DMG. And so, you know, because there's a lack of those resources, you know, really helping people with things like, you know, voicing NPCs, getting into character, uh, forming dramatic questions, uh, planning and outlining their sessions, you know, integrating different sources of inspiration, keeping track of continuity, like because those aren't those resources aren't an integral part of the game, like it can feel challenging to try to, you know, implement or execute a lot of those ideas, you know, of which there are so many. Like if I, if I had a nickel for, you know, every time that I had an idea and I was like, wow, this seems really cool. But like, how do I fill in all like the gray stuff in the middle? Because like I've got the tagline, I've got the thesis statement, I've got a broad overview. But how do I actually get into the meat and potatoes of it and make it work on like a beat by beat basis in game? And like, that's the tough part. Did you actually work on those skills and, and how? Like, like voices, improv, mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff. Did you take classes? Uh, <laughs> I, I did not take classes. I wrote in the voices. Honestly, that's just kind of a funny quirk. Back ages ago, I started playing D and D uh, in fourth edition. I want to say back in around '08 or so, but you know, also around that time or a little bit earlier. You know, that was kind of the golden age of like uh, a bridge series, right? Like Little Karibo Team Four Star, uh -huh. uh, and you know, usually it was just like one or two guys just doing these dumb, stupid voices, and like <laughs> I would get really into like mimicking them, just like around friends. Like we had a lot of in jokes. You know, we tended to watch the same episodes and like quote, really dumb lines at each other. And, you know, because of that, I got very used to, uh, and like some other forms of media as well, you know, cartoons, especially, um, you know, I got very used to, you know, extending my vocal range to, you know, do more exaggerated voices, voices or accents or affects. And, you know, once you have that range of more extreme sounds, it's a lot easier to kind of fill in, uh, you know, this more moderated, you know, tweaked tone, you know, um, once you know what an exaggerated accent sounds like, you know, it's it's a little easier to tone it down because you have this, you know, platonic ideal in your mind of, you know, at least what people expect to hear, which may not be, you know, a, an accurate or a respectful representation, but it's a place to start. 
regarding improv, I think my approach is kind of two things. First, you know, I've been doing this for, you know, over 12 years at this point. So, you know, I, I, I'm like, I've very rarely been a player. Um, so DMing is just something I've gotten very used to doing. When I was younger, when I was newer, I was not nearly as good at, you know, running with it as, as, as I am now. But part of it also is that, you know, my secret ingredient is that I almost never improv. Um, like I will improvise, you know, line by line text. I will improvise dialogue. I will improvise narrative descriptions. I will improvise, you know, play by play narration in combat. I might improvise, you know, uh, a few lines in a long conversation with an essential NPC. But like 99% of the stuff that I do is just, you know, filling in the gaps of outlines that I've already prepped in my session plans, right? Like, you know, once I know that, you know, Lady Fiona Vokter of the Vallakian town of Barovia wants to achieve, you know, these four things in her conversation with the PCs. And once I know, you know, that the PCs want to achieve these four things in their conversation with Lady Vokter. And once I know what all the PCs backgrounds are, what their temperaments are and what their attitudes are. And once I know what my players are like, um, it's very easy for me to work within that sphere and, you know, prepare uh, the least amount possible so that I can fill in the gaps by just improvising those little line by line tweaks, you know, what a module might present as box text. But the broad strokes are already filled in because I know what to expect and I don't have to over prepare. Like someone on Twitter asked me the other day, like I posted a session plan just from one of my sessions and someone's like, was like, wow, how many branching possibilities do you prepare for in a session? And my answer was like, usually one, maybe two or three at most. And that's not a sense of like predicting what they're going to do in a single encounter. That's just like, oh, maybe they'll go to like one of three different locations because they were going to check all of these out and they still haven't hashed it out with each other. And even then, that's a very, you know, shallow why that's not going very deep. That's just, you know, again, having that broad strokes for a number of different options. And when I can... I try to corner them after a session, say, hi, we just finished a session, but I need to prep for the next one. Tell me what your character wants to do. And I'm not going to let them go until they tell me what their character's plans and priorities and goals are for the next session and the forthcoming arc of the campaign, uh, because that lets me, you know, prepare accordingly for the next session so that I have all the content that I need to minimize that improvisation. Like, despite what I said about, you know, line by line, like narrative descriptions and like dialogue, I am terrible at content improvisation. If you like are like chasing a thief down an alleyway, like in Waterdeep, let's say, and like you said, and the thief gets away and you're like, okay, I want to go to the temple nearby. There's got to be a temple, right? I'm like, uh, yeah, I, there's a temple, I guess. <laughs> Who's it a temple to? Uh, it, it's a temple of the morning Lord, I think. Okay. What's inside? Uh, uh, th there's, there's an altar. Yes. There's definitely an altar. Like, you know, obviously like I've gotten better at this over the years. Like I'm very comfortable with drawing on, you know, tropes or cliches or other settings that I've envisioned over the years, you know, drawing on actual plays, games that I've run, like, I probably have a, a much larger mental toolbox than I used to for improvising that kind of content. But like, I would never be able to improvise like, a random dungeon and like everything in that dungeon, and, like all the monsters in it, like it would come off as terrible. Um, and like, I, I, I own that about myself. I'm not a structural, structural improvisational person. I'm just someone who has a very strong comfort level with, you know, fiction writing and specifically the nut, the nuts and bolts of writing dialogue and writing, you know, flowery narrative descriptions, like anything beyond that, I got to have an outline in front of me, man. I cannot, you know, just make up structural stuff on the fly. So I guess that's my answer is that I'm so I'm good at improvising the little things, but I'm actually not nearly as good at improvising the big stuff as you might imagine. And 99% of that is a very regimented approach to game planning knowing my players, knowing my setting, knowing, you know, my storylines and manipulating player psychology to get them to go where I want them to go. 
<laughs> that oh, last line's my favorite. <laughs> it's a lot easier than you'd think. Maybe I'll publish an article on it sometime. But like players are a lot easier to manipulate than you might think. And I mean that, you know, I don't mean that in like a weirdly like Hannibal Lecter, like, you know, kind of like villainous antagonist kind of way. I mean, like your players are looking for a certain experience. You know, their characters have certain blind spots, have certain, you know, things that they want to fulfill. And, you know, the way I say to, to you know, anyone who asks is, you know, you're like, hey, Dragna, my characters went to, are, are going to go to, you know, this high level area or like I'm scared that they're going to hear about it and they're going to go there and they're going to get TPK'd. What should I do? And my answer is always, if you don't want them to go there, don't tell them about it. Right. Like we talk a lot about immersion and, you know, being true to the world, but like controlling the information your players get and how that information is presented, like that can solve so many problems in terms of, you know, predicting and controlling what your players do. You know, it's, it's that classic, you know, uh, psychological thing where, you know, if you describe box text uh, in a module, there's a reason why the most important thing is always described in the last sentence, because that's what people remember. All the stuff in the middle, people like people's brains, psychologically speaking, don't process that as deeply as the first or final sentence. So if I, my players walk into a room and like, let's say, you know, there's a potential trap in there, but I want them to ignore the trap. I'm going to put the description of the potential trap in the middle of my description start with something colorful at the beginning and end with something that's an immediate call to action, like a goblin pointing a crossbow at them. So it'll be like, oh yeah, you walk into, you know, the, the, the chapel, there's an altar there. Uh, there's a long rope hanging across uh, the side door. Uh, that's, you know, looking, that's looking pretty, you know, thinly stretched and connected to something in the walls. Uh, there's some bookshelves off to the side. Um, you know, there's some beautiful stained glass windows with the light streaming in. And at the center of it, kneeling before the altar, there's a goblin pointing a crossbow right at you uh, with a snarl that says, you feel unlucky punks. <laughs> and no one's going to care about the rope. No one's going to notice it. They're focused on Bob and the Goblin pointing an arrow at their faces. But I mentioned it. I'm being fair. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of little tricks you pick up. Man, you, I'll tell you what. You are a magic player. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm convinced. I played when I was super, uh, when I was in high school. It's uh, I actually just bought one of the boxes the of the, they just released the D&D box this mm -hmm. this month i bought one of the box of booster packs just for old time's sake but i used to play back in the day and that technique you know what now that you articulate it in the way that you articulate it i do the same thing like i always i always would prefer my players go uh you know a small subset of directions just to get more of the story to understand more of their environment to understand more of the npcs around them and how how, what drives them and some of the decisions they make like they have to make a certain decision in order to reveal that information so it's actually kind of comforting to me <laughs> to hear that uh that you sort of do the same thing i, I think you're a little bit more calculated than i am <laughs> but maybe i could actually start to calculate a little bit more but i probably try to be very cognizant of you know that overloaded word of of railroading and how my players might feel about it. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, like for me, like there's a difference between railroading and influencing, right? And, you know, like by influencing, like I'm not trying to, you know, force them into my story, right? Like I know there are some DMs who approach D&D as, you know, I'm telling my story and you're playing through my story. Like that's like full respect, you know, that if that's how you enjoy playing, that's how you enjoy playing. But for me, D&D is a story that I tell with my players. It's our story to tell. You know, I don't want to take away their agency. I don't want them to play through the motions of how I, you know, by forcing them. But that doesn't, you know, mean that I can't try to push or influence things in a certain way to have the narrative evolve in a way that I think is more enjoyable for them, or that will produce a, a more fulfilling and engaging story in the long run.
You know, a, a lot of D&D issues are caused by miscommunications or, you know, a lack of, um, you know, matching expectations, you know. Trust me, you'll like this part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's you know, it, it's it's not so much since you know, forcing them to do what I want so much as, you know, pushing them in a way that I think will make for the most enjoyable story for all of us. And, you know, ultimately it's up to them how, how they, it evolves, right? Like I'm, I don't tend to prep sessions more than a single session in advance. I kind of, I'm kind of, I follow the Tao of the uh, sly flourish, lazy DM, right? Um, like, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm prepping situations as the Alexandrian puts it, not plots. I'm just going to lay out the cards on the table and then my players are going to do with it as they will. You know, I'm going to try to push them in certain ways. If I think that, you know, I'm better prepared to handle one thing over another um, you know, or if I think that might interpret, misinterpret something in a way that I might think harm their enjoyment or my ability to handle the consequences of their actions. But ultimately, you know, it is their decision to do with as they will. Uh, you know, there's a trick that I, 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 I uh, use to try, to try to minimize that kind of uh, need for improvisation, that need for influencing that I forgot to mention earlier, which, you know, really cuts down on improvisation is that I always try to end a session on either a cliffhanger or a moment after they've made a big decision that defines the content of the next session. Like, if if they're like, you know, we just got to the tavern and we want to go to bed, like I'll say, great, we're going to keep playing for another 15 minutes, you know, until your characters decide what you're doing tomorrow. And then once you go to bed after deciding what you're doing tomorrow, then we'll end the session. Because once we do that, I know exactly what content I need to prepare for the next, the first two hours of the next week's session. Um, and then after that, you know, there's a certain, you know, there's a finite number of chains of causality that can proceed from that first decision. But by doing that, I've cut my work, you know, more by more than half just by waiting to get to a point where they've locked themselves, not me locking them, but they've locked themselves into a certain track of the story. And, you know, I don't have to worry about preparing anything else because they've already said, you know, we're going to the mansion tomorrow or we're going to the, you know, the, the haunted, you know, zoo or whatever. I don't know. That way, you know, they still have the freedom to make their own decisions, but I'm just, you know, encouraging them to make those decisions up front so that there's a lot less that I have to do to try to keep them on any sort of tracks. Yeah, for sure. I had one actually come up recently. There was a a point in the story where they had completed something major. They found the Mad Mage. And at mm. that point, they were trying to make the decision whether they're going to go to the Gothias Tree, Amber Temple, or the Swamp, or Valkai. All at the same time, we ended a session, and this was totally my fault, but we ended a session not having made that decision so the following week, I was prepping four locations. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've been there. It is not at all pleasant. You know, you know, sometimes it can work out where there's like, uh, twice bitten, there's been times when like Strahd has, you know, attacked them or had some kind of very antagonistic encounter. And, you know, uh, the players needed a, a long period of time to kind of process that and, you know, kind of work through how that modifies and updates their expectations. But, you know, even even so, like, I find it to be more productive and fruitful if that kind of processing happens after the encounter, which is, you know, again, you know, returning to cliffhangers, why my favorite way to end a session is there's a knock at the door, you open the door, surprise, it's Strahd, the session is over. And then next <laughs> session, we get to actually have the encounter and the aftermath and the processing and the what the hells do we do next conversation. Of course, it's the Strahd's at the door trope. Yep, exactly. And like, it minimizes my prep. I just have to prep this one encounter give them time to, you know, role play and talk amongst themselves afterwards. And, you know, I already had a, a approximation, you know, because I'm, I'm remember, I'm still messaging them in between sessions. I'm asking them, what are your character's goals and priorities? You know, uh, what are their expectations for this encounter with Strahd? What do they want to do after this encounter with Strahd? You know, that sort of thing. 
And so I can still use that OOC meta knowledge to, you know, structure my planning. Because I think that one thing a lot of DMs are very reluctant about is to try to make their DM, their D&D sessions feel any less organic, right? Like people are very dedicated to, I'm going to put the content out there. They're going to do with it as they will. And then I'm going to go back to the drawing board and just silo myself and develop everything in isolation. And then I'll come back next week and we'll do it all over again. You know, there's this kind of common view of the DM as the sculptor of the story and the controller of the world and the, and, you know, the puppet master pulling the strings and you have to hold this veil over the player's eyes. And if you, if you, if you pull away that level of immersion for even but a moment, the experience is ruined. And I think that's a perspective that, you know, gives players far less credit than they deserve because they're looking for, to tell stories of their own, especially insofar as their characters are involved. They have certain expectations and hopes. They have goals. They have things that they may be missing, things that they may be miscommunicating. You know, they might have concerns that they're not able to share because you're not giving them an opportunity to. Like, there have been times when players have said, like, you know, have mentioned to be offhand, you know, I'm kind of, kind of interested in this storyline. And I've, like, said, okay, great. You know, let's set up an opportunity with this other player character or this NPC for you to have this kind of scene in the next session or, like, in an upcoming session. And, you know, to a lot of new DMs, that's horrifying. You know, you're you're artificially creating certain scenes. You're, you're railroading. You're taking away agency. But the way I see it, you know, I'm giving opportunities to tell a story that the player is interested in telling, Right. You know, I've had players who independently of me have coordinated between themselves and said, hey, next session, my character is really frustrated with what your character is doing, you know, about a certain, you know, plot line. I'd, I'd like to hash that out with your character and have an argument about it. And, you know, they'll just do it independently. And, you know, when a good moment comes, they'll just start arguing with each other and everyone will kind of enjoy being drawn into the scene that the players, not the DM initiated. And so I think if, you know, if I could give one recommendation to DMs, you know, trust your players, you know, bring them under that curtain. Let them have a hand and, you know, maybe not, maybe they're not, you know, controlling enemies in combat, but, you know, certainly suggesting, you know, certain scenes that they would like to occur or certain arcs they would like to happen to their characters, right? Like, if your paladin, you know, has in the back of his mind, you know, or if your cleric thinks in the back of her head, like, you know, I want to have a redemption arc or a crisis of faith arc, like, that's going to do no good unless the DM and the player are talking. And for a DM who's never done it before, it can feel very artificial. You know, it's extremely rewarding once you realize that, you are all players on a stage and the stage is not who you are. The stage is what you choose to put on it. And no one's ever going to blame you or think less of you because you decided to put one thing on the stage and not another. And I think that's a very freeing and very rewarding way of looking at what goes on in and out of a D&D session. That's beautiful. Sorry. <laughs> Just... <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. I think I went on like three different tangents there, but. Silence after that comment of epic proportion. <laughs> I think we gave it a moment to breathe, like all good things in life. I do have a question. And it has nothing to do with DND. <laughs> all right, bring it on. So it sounds like you put a lot of care and concern into the relationship you, bu you build with your players. How do you feel about your relationship with like real people outside of DD? <laughs> I mean, you know, I feel like there's a lot of less life lessons you can take from managing D&D, right? Like, especially as a DM, because you're at the center of this web of other people, you know, who all want their own things out of the game and out of their own experience, right? And I know you said, you know, not, you know, not in context of D&D, but just because, you know, of the context, it's, it's you know, probably makes for a good metaphor. Uh, so you'll have to forgive me for that. Uh, but, you know, as DM, you get very used to, to, you know, managing others' expectations and meeting other people where they are, right? Empathy is something you tend to learn if, if you work at it, right? And so I think, you know, for me, the way I look at, you know, relationships with players and relationships with others, you know, 
you know, outside of the game context is, you know, it's a lot of the same principles. It's about empathy. It's about understanding. It's about knowing that maybe people are going through tough times, right? There are a lot of real life social and, and you know, emotional intelligence skills that have a lot of very real crossover um, because ultimately it's a collaborative context. It's all about, you know, dealing with people and working with people and trying to, you know, develop good relationships with people. And that comes from, you know, being honest, being thoughtful. You know, if you have a problem with someone using I statements instead of accusatory statements, you know, such as, you know, when you do this, it makes it makes me feel or I feel why. Right. As opposed to saying, you know, you're being so dumb or you're being so mean or you're being so awful. Right. Um, and I think just in general, that kind of, you know, very mature, you know, collaborative approach to things. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a guru. I'm not a therapist. I'm not some kind of, you know, celebrity social butterfly. But I think, you know, that idea of, you know, approaching people and meeting them where they are and trying to understand where they're coming from and, you know, communicate, trying to communicate in a way that reflects where you're coming from without invalidating where they're coming from has, at least for me, been, you know, very helpful. Well, it's a love match all around. Everybody here <laughs> obsessed. I asked this question to Mandy and I'm asking it to you. You have like mountains of content. What is the one thing that you hope that a player can take from it or that you like want like this is the one thing that makes not makes the campaign but like i feel is very important that, that i've kind of fleshed out mm -hmm. so like the one thing that i've changed or added to curse of strahd that you know i i, I feel is mo that i would kind of feel is the most important or the most meaningful change yes uh i think man that's a tough question <laughs> I, th I think if my answer is wouldn't be in, would be in two parts uh, and I know that's kind of cheating um, but I think there are two things that I would kind of hold up the first one is the character and arc of Irina Koliana who is you know in in the book you know uh, she is um, I, I guess you know she she's very plot relevant to a lot of Strahd's interests and obsessions you know kind of going back to this classic mold of the Dr of the Dracula obsession and stalker figure um, but the book itself does not give her a lot of character. It is, it, you know, her happy ending is her individuality basically being subsumed. And understandably, a lot of people have not been entirely happy with that, especially because the module as written is very much a story about the people around her, but not, you know, herself wanting anything or having any agency in any sort of way. And a lot of what I'm most proud of in Reloaded is, you know, doing my best to give her that agency, right? Where she, you know, is caught up in this maze this labyrinth of uh outcomes that other people want for her her brother wants to escort her to safety her father wanted to you know keep her from the truth of the fact that you know she's uh not related to him by blood you know uh her you know half brother you know wants uh, to keep her for his own you know uh obsession because he's determined to bring his family back together by any cost you know and Strahd, of course is you know stalking her as this very you know abusive um objectifying vampiric you know metaphorical figure and so you know, and there's also the character of, you know, Sergei Strahd's brother who kind of plays a role in it. And, you know, again, you know, ostensibly he is portrayed as a good guy, but in a way that very much invalidates anything of Irina's actual personality or the relationships she builds with the players through the course of the campaign. And so one of the things that I'm most proud of in Reloaded is, you know, doing my best to tug at that and expand that into an arc where she has the choice to, you know, where everyone is pulling at her from different angles. And rather it's her choice based on how she interacts with the players, what options and opportunities they give her and, you know, how they treat her as a person that can really give her an opportunity to grow and flourish and become so much more than that and ultimately choose her own path and, you know, seize control of her own history of her destiny and her fate 
and join with the players as opposed to just being the damsel that they have to defend and escort, um, really join with the players to be a meaningful figure in the fight to not only rescue and save her homeland, but rescue and save her own soul. So that's the thing I'm very proud of. I, I felt that was, that, very, that was very important for, you know, such an important character, the module. She gets like, you know, four or five lines of text and like one paragraph describing what happens to her later. Um, and I felt that was a pretty big injustice. But, you know, uh, now I'm, I'm pretty happy with how she's uh, been revised and reloaded. And my hope is that, you know, she's been a much more engaging and pleasing character, um, you know, for those uh, who've uh, run my changes uh, that I hope, you know, are a lot more respectful of her agency and of her, uh, you know, history and of her role in the campaign. The second thing that I would have to say is, you know, on a more structural holistic level is Curse of Strahd, like a lot of D&D modules is laid out in this very narrative sense, which is, you know, entertaining to read through, but is not very helpful for, you know, getting this top level idea of how to, like, like we said earlier, implement and execute moving parts of a campaign. And so, you know, through things like the DM primer that I wrote on the Curse of Strahd separate on the player primer on, you know, a bunch on the comprehensive history of Barovia, you know, a, a, a spreadsheet that I published and a whole lot of other pieces. I, my hope is that I've given, you know, DMs, especially new DMs who aren't sure how to approach a module, a kind of, you know, very broad level understanding of how to understand and where to meet the module to make it their own in their own campaign. Because it can be very challenging to take this, you know, 15 chapter, four appendix, you know, 300 page long module and just turn it into something coherent, especially when everything is scattered across in this very, you know, flim flam narrative context. And so my hope, you know, is that my work has given them you know, I'm not saying they have to take everything that I give them, right? Like a lot of my stuff is subjective. Not all of it's it's great. I hate my chapter on the town of Velaki. I'm revising the, the Fanes chapters now. I'm like, I'm not saying it's perfect, but my hope is that, you know, a new DM is feeling very overwhelmed can kind of, you know, see my guide as, you know, this welcome, this, you know, friendly slide into the content and think, okay, maybe, you know, I don't have to dive into the deep end. Maybe I can just wait in there slowly and use this guide as scaffolding to understand the themes and the content and the characters and the setting that I'm dealing with so that I can delve deeper and start making my own tweaks and updates to the content to really tailor it to my players and my game. Yeah, no, I think that's, I mean, that's what we all hope for when we kind of give out this kind of information is that, you know, it's so helpful to somebody, you know, somebody that was like you, what, like five years ago when you started like, hey, I think this information might help kind of thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Man. So you baked out Irina. I can't recall. Did you also bake out uh, Mordenkainen and his involvement? I'd be really no. curious to. Um, I know. I know someone else has poked at Mordenkainen. I think for me, I tend to leave him alone. You know, partially because I don't. He's not. I don't find him very interesting or particularly relevant to the story. Like he's not a pivotal character yeah, in the way that fair. Irina is. And secondly, just because I, I don't think mechanically there are many is any issues with it. You know, like. I suppose, you know, you could say that, you know, uh, one role that you could give him would be like, you know, giving the PCs intel and, you know, about, you know, the layout of Strahd's castle and Strahd's tactics and battle and his capabilities. But like, you could probably also do that through Van Richten. And like, Mordenkainen himself, like, I guess the biggest objection you could give is that, you know, he's like the 15th NPC in the module who you, for some reason, you need greater restoration to heal. Um, <laughs> and like, which like, you know, God, like, there's like four NPCs, like three NPCs that like need greater restoration some way. So if you don't have a 10th level cleric by the end, like you're basically screwed, which, you know, is, is another comment about how Curse of Strahd really elevates, you know, that specific archetype and basically forces you to play it, to play the module optimally. But in general, I think, you know, Mordenkainen is, he's fine, I guess. Like if he's not, if he's not the Destined Ally, like you're going to go there, like you're going to beat him up. Maybe he'll beat you up. 
Um, like if you want to cure him, like there's like this complicated process to go through, but like you don't really get anything out of it. There's nothing pointing you there. He's just kind of like this most severable piece of the module. Um, like I was talking to some friends and other DMs the other day about how, like Curse of Shroud is this very interconnected module where like changing one piece changes all the others. And, you know, that's why it's like this very coherent, cohesive module that, you know, a lot of people really attach themselves to. Because, you know, if you change something about the Druids, that changes something about Strahd, and that changes something about, you know, the Dusk Elves. And we were like, oh, yeah, but probably like the Night Hag's little bone grinder. Like, you could probably cut that out pretty easy. But like, no, that's not the least. That's not the most severable part. The most severable part is Mordenkainen, because he has nothing to do with anyone. It's just kind yeah. of off on the side of the map doing stuff on his own. He's and, like, there's no story. hooks leading there. Like, there's, there's no reason why anybody would be interested in talking to him. Like, even if they put the pieces together, there's nothing really to be gained by talking to this crazy wizard who's, like, shooting fish with lightning bolts. Yeah, I had to bake that. I had yeah. to bake that out a bit because he he's he ended up being my group's uh, ally. Yeah, like I, I've I've used him like in my campaigns. Like I've I've had him be a convenient excuse for you know Rudolf Van Richten you know vanishing just before the climax, um, so that the PCs can't try to recruit him. Like he's gone off to he's he's put together the pieces. He figured out Mordenkainen's true identity and he's going to try to heal him with his cleric powers and like try to understand more about Strahd's weaknesses and his combat in the Castle Ravenloft. And like that is a perfectly useful you know purpose for him in my mind. But, like, as far as the players, I don't think you need anything. Like, he's fine for his purpose. He doesn't really do anything worthwhile. And, like, I don't think, you know, like, Reloaded is all about finding gaps, right? And filling them in. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, I think that's part of, you know, where mine and Mandy's styles clash, right? You know, you know, I love Mandy. She's great work. But, like, she's all about, all about fleshing out things. Um, whereas I'm, again, you know, filling those gaps and just kind of, you know, reloading those things that I think just aren't quite there. So, for me, like, if I don't see a reason to care about Mordenkainen, I'm not really going to touch him because he's doing his job, which is basically nothing. He's off on a corner of the map. You know, if you can, you know, heal him, he'll give you a little charm against Strahd and like uh, maybe give you some useful intelligence. And like, that's good enough for me, right? right. Like it, th- there's nothing crying out for major revisions there. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for those who have, you know, done some really interesting stuff with him. But, you know, I think for me, the first question I ask when revising content is, you know, does this need to be a bigger part of the play experience? And is there anything obvious that's missing? And mm-hmm. if the answer to both of these is no, then I don't I don't necessarily think that I need to, you know, take a hammer and chisel to it. Would you suggest to pick those where the boons are and the ally is and the final resting place versus just drawing them or rolling for them? So I think it depends on what kind of experience you're going for. If, if you're going for kind of this traditional, you know, because Curse of Strahd can be played in multiple ways, right? Depending on the genre you're approaching. You can approach it as kind of a, a gothic horror, you know, which is, you know, these very high romanticism tropes, um, you know, Strahd as the abuser, as the predator, you know, uh, kind of the tormentor of the PCs and just kind of going on this empiric journey, you know, kind of sticking very close to the rules as a written campaign. This kind of a dark fantasy, you know, uh, approach kind of like The Witcher which a lot of players actually want. A lot of players like the trappings of Gothic horror, but what they really want is a dark fantasy with the aesthetics of Gothic horror. They don't want to play Gothic horror because Gothic horror is too depressing. <laughs> and so dark fantasy is, you know, more about, you know, these great narrative beats, you know, these dramatic moments, you know, finding allies and exploring this unfamiliar setting. And I think, you know, ultimately a lot of players say they want Gothic horror, but they really want dark fantasy. And in dark fantasy, you know, these narrative beats, these big moments have to have punch to them, right? Like they have to mean something. If, if you find, you know, the, the sword of blessed sunlight that can slay vampires with a single blow in, like, the barn of, like, some random farmer's house, like, nobody cares about that. Like, that's not dramatic. That's not important. That doesn't feel good. But, you know, if you pull the sword of sunlight from the stone of the cursed temple deep in the mountains, like, that feels great. That's That that makes you feel like freaking Geralt of, of Rivia, right? Like, that plays into mm-hmm. the fantasy of, of, you know, the dark fantasy setting. 
um, where you have these larger than life, you know, meaningful dramatic moments, whereas Gothic horror is a lot more about the personal conflicts. It's not about these big dramatic genre tropes or these big dramatic narrative beats. It's about the interpersonal drama and the exploration of the self. And so in that context, because there's so much variation in how the campaign can be played, if you're going for a very, you know, rules as written approach with a very gothic horror, you know, very dreary, very bleak, very, you know, in, focused on the character's inner journeys as opposed to their external journeys. I think doing the Taroka reading, you know, which places the the foretold items in the Destined Ally throughout the module randomly, I think that works perfectly fine because that sets the characters up to go on their own unique journey, especially because something I tell people over and over again, but which is surprisingly obfuscated by the text, is that, you know, Crystal Strahd is all about this Taroka reading, right? Where you go to Madame Ava, the Vistani fortune teller, and she reads you your fortunes and tells you where you can find the artifacts that will, that will defeat Strahd um, and gain you freedom from Barovia and free the people of the land. There is nothing in the module leading to her except like two or three different places in the mid game. Like every DM I know runs that and that that fortune telling like the first five sessions. But like in Twice Bitten, it's just like 100% rules is written. We didn't get there until like episode 28, right? Like it like and they had to find a very specific NPC who who could give them a recommendation to go there. Um, because in the book, unless you use one of a very specific adventure hook, an adventure, adventure hook that ties very specifically into the dark fantasy as opposed to the gothic horror tropes, the other mm -hmm. three hooks are all very much gothic horror. And those hooks do not lead you anywhere close to that fortune telling until you get to like level six or so. Um, and I think once you get to that point, there's a lot more flexibility and freedom to have these items just randomly scattered about in wherever the gods might place them, which can make, can make that experience rewarding, especially if you're revisiting places that you've already seen, you know, in your prior attempts to escape and understand Barovia. If you're doing a more dark fantasy approach, which again is what I suspect most DMs and players actually want with these big punchy narrative beats you know, moments of redemption and, you know, joy and triumph over the forces of evil and players as heroes instead of, you know, survival horror movie protagonists, you're going to want, you know, first off, you're going to put the fortune telling at the beginning because Strahd is, you know, going to be your long-term antagonist. You're building up to him. You're building him up over time. The players are there to kill him. They're not there to escape him. And, you know, because of that, you want to have a very traditional narrative buildup of, you know, slowly powering up over time with this very, you know, Metroidvania kind of approach to things. Um, and for that purposes, I think, you know, absolutely rig the freaking card reading, right? Like you want those <laughs> items in specific places where they'll deliver the most narrative bang for your buck, especially given the relative power levels of these options and, you know, the the potential options that you can choose. Right. So I think it depends on how you approach the game and what kind of genre and what kind of feel you're going for and what kind of genre and feel your players are hoping and expecting for. Have you ever made your own tarot card, whether it be an NPC or a location? Uh, once. I thought it strange that Isaac Strozny, the uh, the enforcer of the guard and the Baron's right-hand man in Balaki, was not a potential ally. So I made him Ooh. a, I mean, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not an artist. I just added in like the Taroka readings, like add like the butcher. And like, if the, if you get the butcher or like, uh, if you replace, like I replaced one of the executioner options possibly. And like I added Isaac as an option. Cause like a lot of campaigns, especially ever since Chris Perkins did it, uh, make Isaac kind of this more friendly or redeemable figure. And mm -hmm. I was like, you know what? There should like there are a lot of dumb NPC potential allies in here. Isaac would work better than like a good third of them. So yeah, I just put that in there. I haven't really changed much else though. I find that you know there's a good assortment of options in the text to choose from, depending on what kind of experience you're looking to create. Generally, you know, again, like unless there's a glaring flaw or a glaring hole, I tend not to change too much. All right, we're about to hit the hour mark. Does anyone have any last questions? I don't want to hold Dragna up too much. <laughs> Nope. No for Alex. Justin? No, dude, that was epic. I learned <laughs> a lot. Ten. I've, I've learned from Dragna that I need to read more books. <laughs> yeah, there, there's definitely 
you know, a, a lot of my narrative styles I have just cribbed wholeheartedly from a number of fiction authors. So I would definitely recommend that if you if this one takeaway, find some authors with a really strong narrative voice and just go off on them. Yeah, that's that's what I'm feeling because this the Curse of Strahd in, in in its entirety is based off of the narrative. The characters are very well fleshed out and super super old and have a lot of lore, but that narrative draw and understanding the ways that you can take it are going to be huge to the way that either your players want you to run it as a DM or the way that you want to run it. I think I need to find more books. Alex, we'll be in touch. I know you're a book reader. I, am I think they're reader. boring. Look, <laughs> right now, I don't know if I'm the person you want to talk to because I pulled a bunch of books from the library for my kiddos. And so I've got that young teen, you know, <laughs> That YA novel stuff right now? Uh, no, not YA. We can't do YA. Look, Court of Thorns and Roses is listed as YA for the two people who listen to this podcast that absolutely know what that story is. That is not young adult. That is adult. That is, it's spicy. Um, so we're not doing spicy in a third grade classroom. No, we're not. <laughs> we're talking about, I like this boy, but they don't like me. Or it's a coming of age I'm coming out as whatever, or, you know, I need to win this race, but my grandma's at the hospital. What do I do? Like, that's the level that I'm going to be at. So Justin, if I find anything, I'll give it to you. Yes, please. I will take it. You know what? Then I'll just straight out ask it. What's your book recommendation then <laughs> to kind of get that feeling of oh, from Dragnet or, or narrative? Oh, yeah. that's a good question. Dang it. <laughs> you know i would have to say you know there's a bunch of you know uh authors that i've read a lot of you know uh jim butcher uh the dresden file series is a very strong uh a protagonist with a very strong clear voice you know very snappy clear dialogue um and it's urban fantasy it's excellently written obviously if you're looking for you know very like kind of deep medieval fantasy descriptions you know it's a little self-indulgent but you can't go wrong with george R. R. martin song of ice and fire and as for just kind of my the biggest inspiration i take though is from it's funny you mentioned young adults i've been reading this series since i was like 10 or 11 and like it holds up like the it, it, it's a series that treats um it's readers with a, a level of respect that i've rarely seen in other you know uh young adult media it's the young wizard series by diane duane she's an absolutely gorgeous narrative voice uh there's this one description of uh, how the earth looks as seen from the surface of the moon that just makes me tear up every time i read it you know, she has such a way with words, it's almost poetic, but it's all prose. And just, you know, between her and Jim Butcher, especially, these very, you know, strong, dramatic, narratively piercing moments of descriptive text uh, and narration that really just stick with you for a long time, I think. And so I would definitely recommend giving her books a read. She has a gorgeous voice for narrative descriptions, especially in terms of metaphor and portraying, you know, scen uh, scenic descriptions the way that you wouldn't originally anticipate with an absolutely gorgeously broad vocabulary. So I think those would be my top three, uh, Jim Butcher, Diane Duane, and George R. R. Martin. And one more for the road. Who's your favorite character from Curse of Strahd? Uh, hands down, Erwin uh, Mardikov. Uh, I mentioned him earlier, you know, as as this character, um, you know, he's the owner of the tavern. He's got this own, you know, uh, secret, you know, shady stuff he's involved in, uh, you know, in, in a good way, not in like a sketchy way. And like he's this very interesting, complex character. But I think for me, the interesting thing to him is that, you know, he's a family man. He's a, a, a tavern owner. He's someone who's very secure and, you know, is able to provide, you know, a sense of comfort and welcoming to others. He's a very much for me when I run it. He's very much an emotional core of the module. He, he shows the players that light 
in the darkness and you know gives them a, a place to recoup and regain themselves um you know i i find it very enjoy enjoyable to you know portray the you know the the meaningful relationships that he has with his children with his family with his wife with his patrons uh and the ways he tries to support the players as they go throughout their own journey and so you know i, I have some others that i enjoy you know esmeralda devonier the vistana monster hunter she's probably my second favorite because i play her as you know this really sassy fierce determined brilliant monster hunter you know with her own issues and her own challenges and i find her fascinating as a character but as a, just an emotional core and just you know this very simple humble yet complex web of relationships with others i find uh erwin Mardikov, uh to be pretty hard to beat awesome and last do you have anything to plug before we wrap this all up sure so if you're interested in getting my hot takes on curse of strahd and D D or just, you know, throwing me whatever Curse of Strahd related, you know, hot takes or hot topics you can think of. I'm on Twitter at twitter.com slash Dragnacarta. That's D-R-A-G-N-A-C-A-R-T-A. I also uh, work as a guest author uh, with uh, Flutes Loot. Uh, that's Flutes as in the instrument and then Loot as in treasure. Um, I just published an article there about... Uh, what was it? Uh, how to kind of engage your players in storylines and scenes by using a, a technique in fiction writing called dramatic questions. Uh, and, you know, making sure that, you know, all of your scenes and all of your scenarios have a purpose to them and have a central tension and a conflict that in real stakes that your players can really sink their teeth into. Um, and I've I published a few articles on there. So if you want to, you know, some more of, you know, my long form stuff, you can definitely check out there as well. Uh, and then finally, uh, I also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash um, a bunch of different tiers, uh, like bronze level, you know, buck a month, you get access to a discord. Uh, you can chat with me about Christmas Strahd and D and D, um, early access to my content. Um, and I run monthly Patreon discord workshops. You know, we kind of, you know, do a little live stream privately, talk about a patron voted topic, um, and, you know, really, you know, go in depth on how I approach it, um, and have a nice back and forth while we try to, you know, build something together, demo something, and really go into the theory of how I approach different parts of DMing. Uh, you know, there are upper tiers where you can access, you know, you know, campaign set planning templates, you know, session plans, asking me questions and for advice about your campaign, and then like monthly mentoring sessions, uh, the higher tiers, uh, that's, that's patreon.com slash dragnacarta. So if you're interested in, you know, getting more direct line, or if you want another pair of Eisner Christmas Strahd campaign, uh, feel free to check me out there as well. Yeah. This was just a sampling of what he has to offer. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a real pleasure. So you guys have been great. Thank you again. Yeah. No, thank you. It's been awesome. Justin, before we leave, do you have anything to plug as well? Oh man, uh, I stream on Twitch. Tacos and Tabletop is the tag. We stream every Mondays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. Mondays is Curse of Strahd. I run the DM there. On Thursdays, I'm a player in another DM uh, game that's 100% homebrew. And on Saturdays, we rotate DMs every month and play one shots. It could run from one to four weeks. Check me out there if you want to see some action. I don't have any other social media. I need to get it. <laughs> oh, and shit, sorry. I completely forgot to mention, if you don't mind. Go for it. Go ahead. We spent a bunch of time talking about Twice Bitten. Uh, if, you didn't, if you're interested in checking out uh, the live stream that I run, uh, an actual play of Curse of Strahd for five of the other Curse of Strahd DMs, uh, we dig deep into the rules of the written module, really character-driven stuff. You know, if you're interested in checking that out, we stream most Saturdays at twitch.tv uh, slash rcurseofstrahd. And you can also watch all of our past episodes at youtube.com slash C slash R Curse of Strahd. Um, so feel free to check it out. Hopefully you enjoy. If you're a DM or looking to play Curse of Strahd, hopefully it's helpful or at least enjoyable. Awesome.
All right. Thank you, both of you and Alex. Thank you, dear listener, for joining us for another episode. You can find us wherever pods are cast. Please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. That helps get the word out and helps us become a legitimate podcast. Although I think we're hitting a year, so maybe we are legit. It's, it's tomorrow. It is tomorrow. I have it in my Congratulations. calendar. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> happy, happy birthday. Oh, shucks. Me without potty, party poppers. Oh, that's a good idea. We should have done that. We should have worn party hats. For a podcast that people obviously <laughs> no watch. can see us. Yep. <laughs> we can just say we did and they would have to be none the wiser. Absolutely. We are all in party hats and we have party hats. That's it. I couldn't think of what else you want to wear for. <laughs> Balloons, party poppers, streamers. You just keep going. Pops. We're good. We're good. I don't know. You can also find us on Patreon and all of the social medias. Please help get us out so go tell a friend go tell a neighbor about your favorite dungeons and dragons podcast thank you so much for listening my name's adrian and i'm alex go have some fun